0: Hi,
1: everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Atkinson podcast on JustTheNews.com. I hope you'll check out all the Just the News podcasts. You can go to JustTheNews.com and see the list of them on the homepage. Today, we're looking at the soft on crime debate. We're talking to a George Soros-funded reform prosecutor, Steve Descano of Fairfax County, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. Police Chief
2: Robert Conti. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth, curated, expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology.
1: A recent poll found that the vast majority of American voters say that America's current violent crime wave is going to be a big factor in the upcoming midterm elections. Today, we're going to hear from flip sides of the same coin, a fascinating and insightful interview with Fairfax County Commonwealth attorney in Virginia, the top prosecutor there, Steve Descano. He's one of the dozens of so-called reform prosecutors elected in recent years across the country, instituting what many critics say are soft on crime policies that they blame for America's crime surge. You'll hear his side of the story. He makes a lot of great points. He and some of his colleagues were heavily funded by George Soros, the billionaire activist. I asked him about that, too. You won't want to miss it. But first, a different perspective from a man who's at ground zero, let's call it one of America's biggest tough neighborhoods, Washington, D.C. He's Police Chief Robert Conti. By the way, I began by asking him to comment on another interview I just done for my Sunday TV program, Full Measure This Week. The interview was with civil rights and community activist Robert Woodson in Washington, D.C., who's working on internal solutions. To the crime, drug, and poverty problems in America's poor communities. So the first thing Chief Conti is talking about is Robert or Bob Woodson. Any thoughts about the work that Robert Woodson does? Because we're going to put that in the piece, too, sort of his reflections on, you know, crime and enforcement and so on.
3: Yeah, Bob has done a great job in Washington, D.C. communities dating back many, many, many years. Uh, they brokered one of the, uh, the group that he was with. Alliance of Concerned Men, I believe it was at the time, uh, brokered one of the treaty or one of the truces in the city between several of the rival neighborhoods. Very impactful, uh, and I've had an opportunity to interact with him on various occasions. And he clearly is still in the fight and still out here doing good work in community.
1: He was telling us about truces, either that one or others that have been negotiated. Mm -hmm. Is that where? they're actually able to talk to the leaders in the communities of gangs or the people that are most influential and get them to stand down?
3: I think it's, it's more talking to people who have uh, influence in communities. D.C. is a little different from some other places. You know, Organized gangs with hierarchy, not, but uh, certainly uh, crews or people who associate themselves through geography in terms of a neighborhood or music, uh, we see a lot of that. And there are certain people within those groups uh, who have influence over, over the people who, who they associate with.
1: Is there any simple way to explain why, if they can stop fighting and shooting for 100 days, why that can't continue?
3: Well, I don't think there's a, a, an easy answer uh, to it. I think that people have to be committed to it, the people who are involved. I mean, these are people obviously um, in many cases who care more about some of these individuals than they care for themselves Uh, and that that is unfortunate but uh, I think that you have to be committed to this work Uh, you can't just pop up in a neighborhood I'm here you know do the work and then just kind of go on a lot of the people that I find ourselves dealing with are people who need intense um, interaction engagement you know through multiple systems Uh, you know, be it, you know, things outside of law enforcement, but there has to be that continual continuous engagement because uh, oftentimes what I hear from people that I talk to in community is that they feel, you know, abandoned by government or abandoned by um, people who are supposedly helping and, you know, they work as long as they have a grant. Then after the grant is gone, they're no longer present in community. And people in community have seen that time and time again. So uh, I I think it's a very complicated thing to really kind of get to the bottom of, but I think that you've got a lot of hard-working people that are out there who are committed to the work.
1: That's interesting because that's what Mr. Woodson said.
3: <laughs> He's, He's a smart man.
1: He said that a lot of money, he even had a figure, trillions of dollars yeah. have come into the community and a lot of the money has gone to the people that facilitate the supposed solutions, mm-hmm. and then they're gone. Mm-hmm. In the national discussion about soft on crime and what's happening, do you in your experience, is there a real increase in crime that we're seeing, or is this more perception than anything else?
3: No, I'm seeing it is definitely an increase uh, in crime uh, in communities you know, all across our country. I, I, many of my colleagues, many of the other major city chiefs you know, I'm in contact with. And they are experiencing these things in their in their areas as well, uh, and I'm sure that you know there are a lot of contributing factors. You know, de- depending on where you are, certainly. As we talk about uh, policies that have been made over the years, uh, we think about the pandemic that we've come through or that we're still in the midst of, actually. Uh, I think all of those things, um, you know, coupled with uh, bad actors not being held accountable uh, in, and, uh, in the ecosystem of the criminal justice system, I think all of those things have contributed to really what we're seeing now.
1: If there is a trend that's happening across the country, even though there's different factors in every community, how could that be? I, I, The pandemic aside, what else has happened all at the same time that could be impacting something in that way?
3: Well, I think there's been a national narrative about how we deal with crime um, or how have we dealt with crime in the past to now that we have... Try to we as community, we as a country have tried to course correct. You, we know that in the past that there have been, you know, tough on pro, uh, tough on crime approaches uh, to addressing crime uh, issues in community, whether it's uh, marijuana or you know low level crimes, you know, just tough on crime type policies, and and there are people who believe that at that point, you know, the system went too far. And then there's been kind of a, in my estimation, kind of an overcorrection of that to try to compensate for some of the failures of the past, and I think that the thing that we really have to focus on is really kind of drawing the line when it comes to violent crime. Uh, Course-correcting individuals who are correcting violent crime looks a lot different, in my opinion, from course-correcting someone who is on a a trajectory of just committing, you know, lower level offenses, you know, petty theft, that kind of thing. You know, one might argue that, hey, there's potential escalation there. But if you have a 15 or 16 year old, as an example, putting a gun in somebody's face and a a 15 or 16 year old who gets caught, you know, because he stole a bag of chips, I think that the those two things, while we may n- need to focus services on those individuals, there are things that we have to do to help get them on the right track, uh, that, that antidote, so to speak, it, 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 it might look a little different for the two of them. This person's dosage might be a little stronger than the dosage we would give to this person.
1: I've seen you speak in some press availabilities, and you get a little hot. <laughs> what is it that sets you off?
3: Well, I, I care about my city. I was born and raised here in Washington, D.C. And when I see things that uh, adversely impact community, that make people feel unsafe in our community, um, that gets me fired up. When 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 those things happen, uh, I you know I, I've I've probably stood over top of more death uh, than most. Uh, people in our city when we talk about, you know, the things that, that happened, you know, day in and day out. Just yesterday, uh, I was dealing with a situation where a woman, you know, caught a stray bullet as she was riding by in a the car that killed her yesterday, right? And, and those, those things bother me because they don't have to happen. Right. And, and when I say they don't have to happen, you know, I oftentimes look at the perpetrators of these offenses. I look at some of the things that they've been involved in and I'm asking myself, why is this person still on the streets? Why is this person in a position where they have the ability to obtain a firearm and use it? They've already demonstrated that to us on one occasion, two occasions, three occasions, in some cases, multiple occasions within the same year. So how is it that this person is able to be in community and commit some type of violent act? Those types of things really frustrate me. It frustrates me as a chief of police More importantly, it frustrates me as a father, it frustrates me as a citizen of the District of Columbia when I see that happening in my hometown.
1: If you feel as though your law enforcement goals are not in sync with the system that actually takes care of things after the arrest, how does that become anything other than this sort of revolving door?
3: That's another frustrating part. You know, we have to work with our other partners within the criminal justice system. And I think, you know, if you check, you know, just on a national scale, um, those same struggles exist in Washington, D.C., in other places uh, throughout our country. And we try to work through those the best that we can. But I think this is where I will often say that criminal justice fighting crime is not a spectator sport. It's not. Everybody can be involved in this, and community members especially have a voice and should have a voice at the table when it comes to how we deal with crime in communities their voices need to be heard in that space that is very important and i don't think we do enough listening to community members in that space i've learned over time that people respond differently depending on their proximity to pain and what i mean by that is when that person who got murdered or who got robbed or who got carjacked happens to be you or somebody you love your reaction is much different when, uh, as opposed to when it happens to somebody over there, you don't know the person, it wasn't in your neighborhood, it wasn't in your city. That reaction is totally different. So, you know, I get to see it up close and personal all the time, as we're dealing with a situation right now, you know, as as we're going through this interview, but, you know, that's someone's loved one. It's not a number to me, right? You know, we had 262 murders last year. You know, those are not numbers to me. Those are real people, real families impacted by those things that happen in community. And when community's voice, in my opinion, is not represented in the system that we are in, most people, most people, if you ask them, hey, you know, a person who pulled a gun and shot somebody, you know, like, yeah, that person being back out in in, in community over the course of the next week or the next two weeks, I mean, most people, like, like, that doesn't even make sense. Like, that, that, like, that shouldn't happen. But most, uh, some people will say, hey, well, like, you know, police, you know, why did you guys let them out? Well, you know, that, that, that's not the thing that, 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 that I'm responsible for within the system. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about, oh, well, is this finger pointing? Is it this? Is it that? You know, I, I just look at it this way. You know, our, our criminal justice system, really, on a national level, uh, it, 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 is, it is, you know, it is sick right now it is sick right now and needs to be tended to and really have everyone to to, to look, you know, I, I say follow the cases. What are the outcomes of the things that are happening? When that guy gets arrested for a firearm, for carjacking, whatever, what is the outcome of that? At the end of the day, what is the outcome? I certainly have a role in that. there are other partners who have a role in that in that space, but what is the ultimate outcome, which is the measure of how effective in my opinion we 're being in community uh, which is uh, uh, it 's a measure of how effective we 're being in community how we 're dealing with individuals, and are we really seeing what it is community members want to see at the end of the day and i don 't sometimes we get it right sometimes not so. I respect the system for what it is, but I know that over the course of the last year, two years, et cetera, you know, people have um, uh, you know, said to the police, for example, you guys need to do this different, you need to look at that. And I, and I, I, I agree with all of that. But I think that it's more really a holistic review of the system to see where else are there gaps in the systems that we need to make adjustments. I think it's important that we do that.
1: More after a short break. In today's increasingly managed information landscape, independent journalism has never been more important. Support factual reporting without the censorship by visiting CherylAckison.com and click the Store tab. Proceeds from sales go to causes related to independent reporting, including the new Ion Awards I'm sponsoring to encourage accurate, off-narrative, original reporting. Also, check out my bestsellers on this topic, Stonewalled, Slanted, and The Smear, And thanks for being part of the solution. Back now with Washington, D.C. Police Chief Robert Conti. If you had to describe in just a paragraph what the trend is in Washington, D.C. in terms of what you've seen with crime and violence, where would you tell people you're at?
3: I would say that we have the ingredients in Washington DC to do some great things to experience reductions in crime. Um, There has been historic investments in alternative um, means to to deal with issues in the form of violence interrupters, uh, social services, historic investments. We still have police officers who are out here working. We took 2,410 illegal firearms off the streets of the District of Columbia last year. So you have a police department that's working. Uh, You have historic investments in alternatives to policing. And I think bringing those things together uh, and making sure that we're giving you know, the, 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 the correct antidote to the correct person, you know, in terms of how we treat individuals that find themselves in that system, I think that we'll see the reductions in crime that we want to see. But it's really going to take people to work together, and I know that's a little more than a paragraph, but Washington, D.C. really has the ingredients. Some people have, you know, not quite made the investment yet in some of these other things. You know, we have. Uh, We're we're doing the work, we're we're focusing our law enforcement officers to focus on place-based and people-based enforcement as opposed to things on a wider scale that have the tendency to alienate black and brown communities, right? So like really being very strategic and focused in an area. So you know, you you got the police department that's that's really kind of tuned in to, to being more strategic in their approach. Other resources there uh, available to people who will take advantage of them, but really bringing those things together. So I'm hopeful. You know, I I remain optimistic. I I have to be.
1: If crime and violence has peaks and valleys in a community, where is Washington, D.C.? Have you hit a peak or a recent peak in the last? couple
3: of years yeah we had a spike in in murders last year our overall violent crime rate was up three percent last year so it wasn't a significant spike Um, when you talk about our property crimes it was the same thing a small spike three percent in property crimes Um, this year is interesting as i look at you know where we are uh, right now, the, the, the leading issue, if you will, is in the space of uh, robberies. That's the thing that we're focused in on uh, now. Obviously, we remain focused on shootings and that kind of thing, but you know, they were not as many robberies last year as we're seeing this year. But there's so many things that go into that. Last year, you know, being locked down during the course of a pandemic and all those kinds of things going on, not as many people out and about, restaurants and clubs not fully open. This year, we're in a space where a lot of places are. Open and people out and about and into the city, so you know there are different dynamics that are going on. I think all of those things are really contributing factors, and to figure out you know you know kind of where we are uh, on the scale. You know, I want to see us us reducing. That's that's the space where I want. Uh, to see Washington D.C. ultimately but I think it's going to really take uh, a collective effort of all these things coming in place when I put bad guys in jail you know there's an expectation that you know that person is going to go through the system and I'm hopeful for a great outcome that's not going to allow that person to commit other violent crime in communities
1: you mentioned the woman that got hit by a stray bullet you hear a lot of tough stories every week every day maybe every day is there one, or are there a couple you can mention that have stuck out to you as you've tried to figure out what to do and what the best strategies are? In the last, you know, I was talking to one of the folks here about the carjacking mm-hmm. with the woman with the child in the back because mm-hmm. that was on video, so mm-hmm. that got a lot of attention. Any stories you've heard lately that really make you double down and just think harder about what you can do?
3: Well, I mean, there are always... Uh Things that that happen, um, you know, it, it's not just the lady from yesterday. You know, I think about um, the people who just period who have needlessly lost their lives to c- gun violence, right? Certainly, there there are ones, um, you know, that make me go home at night and you know kind of look at my kids differently, especially when it involves young people. You know, those those really stand out when it involves older people that really stands out um, we had a a, a, um, a case here in in Washington DC you know recently when i'm thinking about how we deal with children you know where two young ladies uh very young in age they carjacked uh, a guy and flipped his car over and and the guy died as a result of that you know those kinds of things you know, make me double down on that we really have to figure this thing out. Uh, Again, recognizing that you can't incarcerate your way out, you can't program your way out, but what is that thing that we need to do to really thread the needle to make sure that we're doing everything that we possibly can to make our community safer? Uh, Again, people talk about the number all the time and, you know, oh, is it this percentage chief or is it that percentage? Well, you know, the percentage really doesn't matter. One is one too many, especially if it's your kid, if it's your mom, if it's your dad. You, you, you know, one is one too many. So um, that's the fire that really gets me going every day. Like, I, I, I will not rest until we get a handle on this. And, you know, when my time comes for, the, for me to transition on to do something else, you know, I'm hoping the person who comes behind me can pick up that ball and keep running with it until we, until we get this figured out.
1: Let's say um, Chief Conte gets to be the chief decider for a day, <laughs> not just over your area, but over oh, anything man. that could change. <laughs> you have any thoughts about some things that could be done?
3: Yeah, I mean, one, well, one of the things I think, you know, we have gotten to a space where um, uh, there is no defined line between people who commit violent crimes and people who um, don't commit violent crimes there are many jurisdictions all around our country you'll find people walking the streets who have been accused of committing a murder but they've been released with a, with an ankle monitor on a home confinement or something like that and I'm just I'm just not a, a, not a huge believer uh, in that I think that you know if, if, if there is enough probable cause that exists that a person is arrested and has been presented uh, before a court um, for the crime that they are alleged to have committed and a judge concurs with that i think that people need to be held accountable and that means that they need to be in a spot where they can't do further harm Uh, there was a case not long ago here where a person had been released and um, we got a a note from i got an email from um the victim's father who said, hey, you know, like the deceased person's child, I know that might sound, but the deceased person's child, like, saw the person who got arrested for killing their parent and like like how is it possible that this person is out like why is this person out and that's mind-boggling to me but unfortunately uh it's not just a thing that happens here in washington dc it happens in jurisdictions all around our country and i i think people would be surprised at that like 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 yeah there are people actually walking around who have been uh accused of murder have been through a judicial process and the ultimate decision which i'm not responsible for that part of our ecosystem you know people much smarter than i am they make those decisions right like hey all right this is what we're going to this is what we're going to do the best place for this person is with the ankle monitor back out in community and that that just baffles my mind
1: but are they smarter than you
3: <laughs> well i mean I, Yeah, I will. I will. I will leave that one uh, just as I stated it. You know, I've never claimed to be a clever guy or anything like that. You know, my mother just told me a lot about common sense. You know, I understand that common sense is not necessarily common to everybody. I do get that. Uh, But it's just some things I don't think um, through my lens, through the lens that I see when you when you're talking about violent crime, that is just a. That's the thing that scares the hell out of people. And I think you have to be you have to take a different approach to that. You know, people need to know that we are serious as a nation about this. When you commit a violent crime, there are consequences that are associated with that. And when I'm not talking about like in a covid environment where the consequence may come three years, four years down the line. Right. So right now, over the course of the last year or so, uh, you know, no cases being Going totally through the criminal justice system. That's a real fact. And once we get to a point where that case actually does go before the criminal justice system, the entire criminal justice system, to the point where we see an outcome, that might be two years down the line, three years down the line, you know what I mean, or, or more than that. And, you know, I, I just think that um, when you're talking about people who are having crimes committed against them, um, I just don't understand. It does not. It, it does not make sense to me that, in our system, national system, that we see people who have committed murder, we see people who have committed robbery, like back out in community, like okay, don't don't do that anymore, you know, until your trial. I, that just doesn't make sense to me.
1: My last question is: How much of this, in the big picture, do you think is part of a pendulum swinging? Because I've been around long enough to see the pendulum swing. I didn't know what my dad meant when he told me about that when I was a young kid. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Maybe some, like you say, um, overreaction, correction, overcorrection. But maybe we're just, are we just at a point in a natural pendulum swing?
3: We could be. Um, I have to go back to, you know, the, the things that I see every day, the lives that are lost every day you know wherever we are in the pendulum swing there're real people in the middle of that swing and i don't want my life or my family's life or 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 anyone that's close to me you know like kind of viewed as um, not as important as the rights of somebody who would go in community and perpetrate like like this violent crime right that that like it, it to, to me that that that's that's bothersome uh, to me, I mean, the number of, of, of family members that we try to from the law enforcement side, you know, we really try to, you know, help them to understand our system. It's hard for people to really conceive, you know, when we're trying to explain this to them why it is the way it is. But it's the system that we have right now.
1: Right after a break, we will be back with Fairfax County Commonwealth attorney, Steve Descano.
2: Acorns is an app that modernizes the way you manage your finances. It works in the background of your life by combining banking and investing into one seamless experience. Every time you get paid, Acorns can invest a piece of it. You can even get paid up to two days in advance, which is perfect for setting money aside and paying off your bills well before they're due. And every time you make a purchase on things like gas, groceries, or whatever, Acorns can round up your spare change and invest it into diversified portfolios that could grow over time. In fact, on average, Acorns users invest $490 a year from their spare change alone. Not only are these portfolios built by experts, they're customized to your current financial situation and your long-term money goals. And if you're crypto-curious, you can even allocate up to 5% of your portfolio in a Bitcoin-linked ETF to diversify your investments even further. Start investing with Acorns and get a bonus $10 in investments when you sign up at acorns.com invest 10. Remember to consider your investment objectives before investing. For further information and disclosures, visit acorns.com.
1: Now, Fairfax County, Virginia, Commonwealth Attorney Steve Descano, one of America's so-called reform prosecutors, he wrote a paper called The Case for Criminal Justice Reform, which lays out the basic philosophy behind many of these prosecutors who are changing policies in their communities that some are blaming for America's crime wave. You can search for that online if you're interested. Just search Steve Descano, D-E-S-C-A-N-O, and the case for criminal justice reform. His paper is the first thing I asked him about.
4: What policies have you changed here? Uh, We've changed quite a number of policies. Um, and they've been really successful. Um, one of the first things that, w- that we changed is we no longer stopped or we no longer asked for cash bail. And the reason for that is um, cash bail creates a two-tiered system of justice. One-
1: Explain what cash bail is. Someone Thank gets arrested. Mm-hmm. They're being held in mm-hmm. detention.
4: And um, bail is cash bail is uh, the determination of whether or not somebody can go home and sleep at night in their home while they wait for trial. They have to put up some money. They have to put up some money, yes. Um, And all that does is create a two-tiered system of justice, one for the rich and one for everybody else. But critically, it doesn't lead to any community safety. As a matter of fact, um, study after study has shown that cash bail penalizes poor people for being poor, but also leads to more crime, because just waiting in jail before you've been convicted of a crime, simply because you can't afford the cash bail, means that you're going to lose your job. You're going to potentially lose your house. You could lose control of your kids. Um, And that just spins people out to more and more crime. Conversely, just because you can afford a cash bail doesn't mean that you aren't a danger to the community. So our philosophy is it shouldn't matter how much money you have. The dividing line is whether or not you represent a danger to the community. If you're a danger to the community, we want you to stay in jail as you await trial if you're not a danger to the community, we want you at home, raising your kids, working your job, being a member of society as you await trial.
1: So no cash bail doesn't mean a very dangerous alleged killer is gonna be sent home to wait for trial.
4: Correct, cash bail, um, getting rid of cash bail does not mean dangerous people go out on the street. As a matter of fact, getting rid of cash bail, making it a binary decision on whether or not somebody's dangerous or not, really could keep a dangerous person inside, because what we've seen with cash bail is that sometimes judges try to chart a middle course and they'll find someone that's dangerous and instead of just holding them, they will allow them to go back into the community if they pay a certain amount of money, even though that amount of money doesn't have any connection to safety. Okay, cash bail, what other policies? Other policies that we changed, we really, really tried to um, treat kids as kids in our juvenile system. Um, And what I mean by that is we really, really try hard um, to not charge kids as adults, except in the most exceptional circumstances. And that goes to community safety as well. Um, When you take a look at juveniles, what you have is a uh, brain development and maturity that is very, very susceptible to rehabilitation. And at the same time, our juvenile system has a wide array of rehabilitation options that are very, very successful. So we have the choice. If we charge them as an adult, we're going to treat them as an adult. They're not going to get services. They're going to be in prison and they're going to come back to the communities, not having been rehabilitated and quite frankly, potentially more dangerous uh, to their community. But if we treat them as juveniles, get them those services, it's very, very likely that they can get back on the right track, come out, be the productive members of society that we actually want.
1: Anything else? Um,
4: Yeah, Um, we've we've done quite a bit. Why
1: don't you bullet point a couple? And if I want to, we can elaborate on
4: any of those. Perfect. Um, We've worked really, really hard to get away from mandatory minimum charging. Um, We have really expanded on our diversion programs, trying to get at root causes of crimes instead of relying on jail. Um, And then what we've done is we've really tried to make an effort towards wherever possible, um, avoiding felonization because of the 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 consequences Um, as they relate to job uh, opportunities and education opportunities in the future.
1: Is this a coordinated strategy or plan that you work with a larger body or other attorneys around the country or the region?
4: Well, every reform that I've made in this office has been responsive to the needs of Fairfax County. I really think that each community is different. And in many ways, the role of the prosecutor is to bring the community's values into the courthouse. Now, of course, I do talk to my uh, counterparts around the country, uh, people who share my general philosophy, but no, in no way, shape or form would I take a solution that, say, might work for Philadelphia and try to impose it in Fairfax County, just the same that I wouldn't um, try to pitch a solution for Fairfax and, and put it out to Chicago.
1: So these approaches may not be right for every jurisdiction.
4: Well, I think the idea of. I think the solutions should be different for every jurisdiction. I think overall the idea of reform prosecution, taking that approach where we are separating different classes of dangerousness to focus on what would lead to community safety, I actually do think that that is appropriate for communities all across America. Um, And I know that there is. people who disagree with that, Um, and I think they disagree with that not because of any empirical evidence that they might have, but essentially, people are very, very comfortable with the way things are, and there are a lot of people with a lot of vested interest to keep doing the same things over and over again, even though it has failed communities large and small, east and west, urban and rural, Um, it really, this philosophy could fit in any jurisdiction as long as it's applied with that jurisdiction in mind. Tell me about your results. The results I'm very, very pleased with. Um, we are building a more fair and just system. Our, we are, are helping people get at the root causes more than we ever have. Our jail population is the lowest it's ever been. And at the same point, crime in Fairfax County is down 9.6% year over year. And that means last year, we had more than 3,100 fewer victims than we had the year before. So it really goes to show that justice can lead to fairness, then they are not mutually exclusive. So according
1: to the stats, 3,187 fewer victims mm-hmm. last year. Robbery fell by 1%. Domestic assaults, 4%. Burglary by 11%. Auto theft fell by 8%. But 40% more murders. Mm-hmm. 21, and, 21 murders in 2021. 15 in 2020.
4: Well, I'm glad that... Well, let me say first of all, A single murder is too many. I think we can all agree on that. But I'm really, really grateful that you, instead of just going with the percentage, you went with the number. Um, Because while 21 murders is 21 too high, um, we are the safest jurisdiction of our size. We have 1.2 million people, and to only have 21 murders is quite extraordinary. Um, But I will tell you that we continue to try to work to get that number down. I go to every single murder scene. I talk to the families that day. And I go to bed every single day trying to think of ways to drop that number down. And, you know, we talked about reform prosecution, differentiating between those serious crimes uh, where prison uh, is demanded for public safety and other crimes. When we talk about murders, when we talk about those types of crimes, those are the ones where we wanna focus our resources um, and really um, and really um, use prison um, as, the, as the, a tool for accountability.
1: Nationally, do you feel as though this perception that violent crime is up, you could probably find stats to prove almost any point in many different cities, but do you think there has been a real increase in violent crime and homicides around the country, or is this something that's being ginned up Mm -hmm. and the statistics, if we examine them further, wouldn't really match up?
4: Well, I think uh, particularly homicides and some violent crime, not all violent crime, I think there has been an, uh, an uptick, and I think that that uptick has been nationwide. And I think it's really important to to remember that it's nationwide because it happens in jurisdictions with a reform prosecutor, it happens in jurisdictions with your traditional law and order prosecutor. And I think that when we take a look at what's the one singular thing that's going on in our country, uh, we have a once in a generation pandemic that is keeping people from mental health services, keeping people um, from drug addiction services, um, really disrupting people's uh, networks. And that's what we've seen here in Fairfax, and I think that's probably what we've seen across the country. Now the idea that those numbers are being used as a cudgel against reform prosecutors, I think that also is correct. I think that there are individuals um, in national Republican organizations, um, law and order organizations, who will play politics with these numbers as a way to gain political advantage. So I think both can be true because I think both are happening.
1: Under pressure, there have been some who have voiced that their reform prosecutions may have to be tweaked or changed or even reversed. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? I believe there was uh, some turnarounds sort of being voiced perhaps in New York, Mm -hmm. maybe out on the West Coast. Is there room for tweaking if we find, maybe not in Fairfax, Mm -hmm. but in other places, these policies haven't provided the desired results?
4: Well, I think... If public safety is job number one, which it should be, we should always be looking to tweak and improve what we're doing. And that includes four reform prosecution initiatives. I know that we are always looking to tweak and improve. Um, The difference or the most important thing to remember is that those tweaks, those improvements, those iterations should be based on data and results from the community. What they shouldn't be based on are political concerns and pressure from outside groups who are arguing things in bad faith. And I think that in some of the jurisdictions that you mentioned, it has been more that political posturing um, that has caused uh, some people to maybe backtrack. Um, And I think that's really, really unfortunate because the justice system is really a place where we shouldn't play politics. And unfortunately, that's happening uh, in too many jurisdictions.
1: There may have been some cases where you, as a reform prosecutor, saw the facts and said, uh-oh, meaning a really blatant case of somebody being released mm-hmm. that pretty much everybody agrees shouldn't have been who went on to commit a heinous crime. I'm actually thinking of the one in Texas where the guy was arrested and then he was released and he ran into the parade, drove his vehicle mm-hmm. into the parade. What's your comment on cases like that, that aren't happening in Fairfax, but that you see in other places?
4: Well, I don't know the, all the facts uh, of that case. Um, But certainly, what you have is a judicial system, and a legal system with a lot of moving parts. Um, And there could be any number of reasons why you get a bad case outcome. Um, But I think what we've seen over and over again, that is instead of looking at those individual cases and really trying to do a root cause analysis to see where the failure lies, there are a number of people who, for political reasons, um, will use that as a a talking point to really politicize uh, the the reforms in the justice system. I think that's really unfortunate. We work very, very hard to make sure that our policies, our procedures are very finely tuned because we're always trying to avoid um, that type of terrible outcome. Um, But much like anything else, When thing, if things were to go wrong, it's important to look at them with the right lens so we get at the right outcome and never forget that we're working for community safety and the people.
1: People from the outside, when they hear about these policies, sometimes it starts to sound like you're serving the criminal more than you're serving the community. We wanna get them help. We wanna figure out how to get them in a non-prison situation. Mm -hmm. I did notice though that every reform you mentioned, you tied to community Mm -hmm. safety. Can you explain that again? If people on the outside are looking and saying, we hired you to watch out for us, mm-hmm. not to watch out for the
4: criminals. I think that some people, many people, have the, that misimpression that reform prosecution is all about helping uh, defendants. And it's really, though, about community safety. And But in many ways, um, you improve community safety by helping defendants. It's important to remember that most of the people who go to prison, they're going to come back out to the community. And when you talk to victims and what they really want, they don't want to be victimized again. That's their prime goal, and that's my prime goal as a reformed prosecutor. And we know studies have shown, real life experience has shown, a lot of times you put people in prison, their lives become worse. They become better at crime, they get more violent, their level of recidivism raises, and it just becomes a cycle of more victims and more time in prison. If we can arrest that by, of course, giving them help, trying to get at what ails them, it's going to have that effect that it's actually going to help the community, it's going to be more safer for the community, um, and it's going to stop people from being victimized again. So, yes, defendants are being helped, but they're being helped because it's a service of community safety.
1: Any idea how many reform prosecutors like you are out there in jurisdictions, you know, as a D.A. or a Commonwealth
4: attorney? Uh, We are uh, a growing number of people, um, a growing number of prosecutors. Uh, We have some fairly large jurisdictions, um, but I think there's still a lot of growth left to, to be had. You know, one of the reasons why I took this job and ran for this job is because I saw a lot of the reforms in big cities. Um, where the movement took ho- hold. But I've always believed that if it's going to flourish, it needs to start to run through the suburban jurisdictions because suburban jurisdictions are the home of dog whistle, Willie Horton-style politics that people think have worked for decades and decades. And we re- people are now starting to see in the suburbs, that the old approaches don't work, and they're not responsive to those type of Willie Horton uh, politics anymore. So, what we're trying to do is, we are trying to be a model for suburban jurisdictions around the country. Because I would like to one day give you an answer and tell you that you know we're 55, 60 percent, 70 percent of the prosecutors in the country. What would you say you are now? I would say um, we're a, I would say we're a smaller number, but the places where we are have been elected. Um, are some of the most populous areas um, in the country. I can tell you that we have a small number uh, in Virginia, so to speak, Um, or I can tell you we have a small number of Virginia, for example, but we represent almost half of the population of the state.
1: Can you define in a sentence or so what's a reform prosecutor?
4: That's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) A reform prosecutor is somebody who looks at every case individually and tries to figure out long-term what is best for community safety and doesn't default to using prison as a first intervention.
1: And how do you, how did you become that? Did you study this in college or what
4: made you decide that's your philosophy? Um, I became a reform prosecutor because I was a, a traditional federal prosecutor for six years. And I had this idea that the justice system is a place that is focused on safety where people can get a fair shake no matter the color of their skin, how much money they make, where they live. And my experiences in the system around this country showed me that that wasn't necessarily the case. People got treated differently based on the color of their skin or how rich they were. And quite frankly, it wasn't based on community safety, the outcomes we were seeing.
1: Okay, so I used to hear a long time ago that George Soros was funding all of these things, never really investigate or pay much attention to it. Mm -hmm turns out George Soros' interests have funded a lot of the elections of people like you, including you, right? Do you reach out to get that support and do you guarantee something in exchange because they, they have to know, I suppose, that you have a certain philosophy? Or do they reach out to you and say, we'd like to support you?
4: Well, I'll say, first of all, um, I've never met Mr. Soros. Um, I know for, for some people, he can be somewhat of a boogeyman. Um, but he's not a gentleman that that I've ever met. And, you know, the way it worked in my situation is I was running for office. I was well-known in this community. My paper that you mentioned uh, before had been written and was already out on the Internet. And I believe an organization that he that um, maybe funded through one of his foundations uh, reached out to me um, because they saw that I had like-minded values from what they wanted to see out of our justice system. Um, I can tell you that... Um, There were no promises made. I can also tell you that while, um, yes, we did get some help from those national organizations, if you take a look at our our reports, we got a lot of support in county from people who want it change. So while I appreciate the idea that, um, or or, or that some people have the idea that these are totally funded from outside groups, that's simply not the case. We have have, uh, support in the community. We have support in the community because of what we were trying to do and support from outside just help us amplify our message, not create our message.
1: I take your point that you say the stats show this is working here. Mm -hmm. If a different story is told while you are still prosecutor here, do you think you'd be able to turn around your mindset if data shows something else? Would you be able to say we need to do something differently?
4: Well, of course, um, because it's not I would always be willing to do something differently for community safety. I think a lot of people labor under the misimpression that reform prosecutors have a political agenda that they're trying to push. And I have no political agenda that I'm trying to push. I legitimately am just someone who wants to achieve community safety, has a clear understanding of the shortcomings of our system currently, and is very interested in empirically uh, proven processes. So if I needed to change, I would do it because, again, what we're doing is values-based prosecution, not political-based prosecution. And when I say what I mean by values-based prosecution, we're talking about things like equity, fairness, justice, giving people help to get at the root causes. That's what we're about here. And whatever form that takes, we would implement it in the office.
1: So as a takeaway message, if there are people saying, I'm afraid we're being too soft on crime, what would you like them to know?
4: I can appreciate that sentiment, and I understand it, because it is scary when things change. But what I would tell those people is, we're not being soft on crime, we're being smart on crime. What we're doing is we're creating less victims, we're creating less crime down the road. And I feel really bad for individuals who have that fear because of coordinated attacks from outside right-wing organizations who are trying to save a status quo that quite frankly has failed us decade after decade in jurisdiction after jurisdiction. So I would ask those people, I understand the fear, but please give us some time, take a look at the stats, and just see that you're now living in a safer community than you had been before.
1: That was my last question, but I thought of one more when you were talking. Sure, of course. I asked you about Soros, you mentioned right-wing organizations. Mm-hmm. Is there one on the side of the right that you would pin a lot of um, blame or purpose on? In this debate,
4: I would. There are two, as a matter of fact. Um, the first one is the Heritage Foundation. The Heritage Foundation, they have an entire program that they call their rogue Pop prosecutor program, and the entire program is meant at is aimed at putting out disinformation about reform prosecutors. I know that I personally have been in the in the target crosshairs of that organization and that project, and everything that they put out against me is either completely wrong, taken out of context, and it's all designed to prey on people's lack of understanding about the criminal justice system. Um, The second one, I would say, is the the National Fraternal Order of Police. You know, I have the privilege of working with law enforcement every day. I have the privilege of growing up with law enforcement on my block and and having law enforcement in my uh, family. And I know that their values are my values in that they want to serve the community and keep our community safe. Um, but I feel that this organization, um, those aren't their values. They really use the prestige that police officers have to launder far-right ideas, and they're doing that in service of the status quo.
1: More on this fascinating topic on my Sunday TV program this week, Full Measure. That's Sunday, April 24th. To find out where you can watch, go to CherylAckeson.com and click the Full Measure tab for a list of stations and times. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and that you will leave a review, subscribe, and share it with your friends. Check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, more on this same topic this week, by the way, and also check out all the Just the News podcasts wherever you like to listen. Also a reminder, you can support independent journalism causes by visiting CherylAxon.com, Click the store tab. There are some great thought-provoking and fun products designed exclusively for independent and free thinkers like you at a very critical time when fair and important journalism is being censored and discouraged in many corners. Proceeds will benefit independent reporting causes. Do your own research. Make up your own mind. Think for yourself.
0: All right, folks, all of you know the story about my crick in my neck and how I bought a My Pillow a few years ago, and all of a sudden, my neck just healed up. In fact, the orthopedist couldn't figure out what the heck had John done. It was simple. I just bought one of Mike Lindell's pillows, and I all of a sudden found I wasn't sleeping right on my pillow. Mike's pillows did the trick. Well, guess what? He's done it again. He's got something new. He's now introducing his new My Slippers. You want the best. Slipper ever, the best foot experience late at night. Well, Mike has got he took over two years to develop this. He designed it to wear this slipper, indoor and outdoor all day long. It's comfortable, it's durable. It's made with my pillow foam and impact gel to help prevent fatigue in the slipper, and it's made with quality leather suede. They look good, they feel good, they wear good. For a limited time now, Mike is offering fifty percent off his new My Slippers. You will also receive a free book with any purchase. The My Slippers are so comfortable that you'll want to get some for the whole family. It's a great gift, especially heading into springtime. So here, here's what you do: you go to mypillow.com and click on the Radio Listener Square, and use the promo code Just News. That's easy to remember, right? The promo code Just News, and you will get deep discounts on all the My Pillow products, including the Giza Dream Bed Sheets. The My Pillow mattress topper, and of course, the My Pillow towel set. And don't forget, y'all want those My Slippers? You got to have them. They're incredible. Here's another way you can take advantage of this. So you can call 800 951 3715 and use the promo code Just News when someone picks up. Call 800 951 3715, use the promo code Just News. Pretty simple stuff for the best slipper, sheet, pillow experience of your life.